0: Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about faith, family, freedom, the state of Illinois, our nation, and conservative action. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. I'm Monty Larrick. I'm joined by John Stone Street. Mr. Stone Street is a Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview fellow. His breakpoint commentaries heard on more than 1,200 radio stations gifted writer, public speaker. And John, based on what's happening in our culture and in our uh, public schools, a lot of Christian parents are considering home education or Christian schools. What argument do you make that's helping to give parents some direction?
1: Well, I think that, um, unfortunately, not every parent has you know, the freedom economically or whatever to choose any of those options. But what we have to do is take responsibility for the education of our, our children. It's a concept that Abraham Kuyper called sphere sovereignty, that and within certain spheres there are certain authorities. And when authorities step out of their sphere into somebody else's sphere, it causes problems. So there are certain areas in which the government has authority. But when the government steps into the realm of the family and supersedes the authority of the parents, now you've got a conflict and now you've got a problem. And increasingly, that's what's happened in education. It's been seen not as a fundamental responsibility of a parent but the fundamental responsibility of the state. Well, the state has certain goals and certain things that they want to do through education in order to create the certain kind of citizen that they want. And increasingly, that comes along with all kinds of ideological baggage about things like gender and sexuality, progressive agenda items, and so on and so on and so on. And so the main thing to remember is uh, whose job it is. It's the parent's job. Uh, God uh, gave kids to parents. The government has its responsibility. This is not one of them. The church has its responsibility, its area of authority, and we've got to keep these lines clear or we really have some problems.
0: You mentioned it's the church's responsibility too. It seems like churches are reluctant to get behind the idea of maybe starting their own school or coming alongside homeschoolers. What do we need to say to our pastors and church leaders to help get them on board?
1: Well, that's a great question. I I think that not every church would have that calling to start a school, but I think every church should support the parent's calling to parent and to educate their own kid how they see fit. For many, churches seem to think, we want to send missionaries to the culture, and so we want our Christian kids in public schools. And I, and I get that, but um, you don't send a five- or six-year-old to be a missionary, in a, in a, and especially in a hostile country. Uh, and we're not talking about physical hostility here, but we all are talking about emotional and ideological hostility to Christian beliefs. And so the best thing I think that pastors can do is to support parents and help them understand whose job it is. This is kind of the basic theological education of what it means to live in the world, right? It's not just knowing theology, like, okay, this is who God is, this is who Jesus is, this is what the Bible says. It's being able to live out what is true in the context of this cultural moment and the lives that we live. And parents have to wrestle with education, so pastors should support that. John,
0: here in Illinois, legislatures decided that we need to teach LGBT history in our government schools, kindergarten through 12th grade. If you're a Christian student, if you're a Christian parent, how do you respond?
1: Many parents need to really consider that this is not what my kids are taught, and we need to exercise our responsibility to protect our kids, and that means protect their minds as well as their, their bodies and their emotions. That might mean for parents, pull them out of that day. That means for every parent, if they get that instruction, and which, by the way, it's not just in that particular class where that sort of ideology is being taught. Obviously, it's being communicated in, in, in art and movies and television programs, and and it's usually not an announcement like to now we're going to talk about this new kind of you know, ideology about human nature and sexuality and so on. And so parents have to be proactive in that conversation. They have to have it. Look, this is where for us it gets very difficult if you have the option, if you have the alternative to pull your kid out and educate them in a different way. It would make the most sense. For those who don't, you got to have that conversation. And by the way, If a school classroom isn't having that conversation with your kid, the larger culture already is. So this has got to be, here's what this ideology is. This is where that ideology is wrong. And here's the truth. And we're going to have to have that conversation. N.T. Wright said said it this way. He said, we don't always get as Christians to choose what we talk about in the culture. Sometimes the culture chooses. You know, we experience that with a Disney movie here, flying on a plane over there, you know, behind a couple, a same-sex couple showing affection. You can act as if it's normal, but that reinforces the bad idea. So talk about it. What's happening there? What's wrong with this? How do we think about it and why? It's a proactive uh, education of discernment. There's no opt-out for
0: parents, for their kids with this LGBT uh, history
1: mandate. So it's yeah, a conversation. Exactly that you really have to have with your kids. That's been part of some of this le- state-level legislation. We were able to kind of attack it and soften it in Colorado, but I know in California, for example, uh, parents can opt their students out of kind of the mechanics of same-sex behavior, but not the transgender ideology part. Well, who says I can't opt them out? I mean, at, at some point, this goes to the, to the level of, no, you do opt them out. You're not going to teach my kid this. My kid doesn't belong to you. And, and, and this is something I think a lot of parents are reticent to do that are in that situation. Now, again, I think that that decision ranges from, no, you're not going to school on this day. You're not going to learn this from this teacher, and we'll fight it. And if that means you fail this class or fail this test, then we do it. This is part of a larger conversation that the church needs to have. Increasingly, Christian conviction is not seen as just quaint and outdated. It's seen as evil and wrong. And so there are social penalties for believing in it that we didn't have to deal with before. What we call it at the Colson Center is the theology of getting fired. You know, it's been a long time in America since we had to choose, you know, Christians had to choose, if ever, between their con- career and their convictions. Now, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world sometimes choose between their convictions and their life, much less their career. But it's
0: coming to that, or
1: no, no, it, it has. Is. And it is. you know, my friend yeah. Jack Phillips faced that. Um, Baronel Stutzman faced that, and I think a lot of parents face that. I want my kid to get in a great school. Okay, well, how are you going to handle this? Is it worth their soul to get into that great school? Well, they can't have an F on their... Well, maybe they need an F. Maybe the best thing they can do. I, I, I spoke to a, a group of Christian college students. Great school, trains nurses, engineers. I mean, unbelievable school, 40000 $50,000 a year. I said, you know, you guys might be receiving a $200,000 education, and the most important thing you'll do in your life to follow Jesus is get fired. It's just, it's just a new calculus that we've got to be ready to do. Now, hopefully, you know, groups like the Illinois Family Institute and others are able to kind of do what we can to carve out space for conscience rights in states and, you know, both state, at the state level and federally. But look, it's not an abnormal part of Christian history for Christians have to make really tough decisions like that. When the rule says you can't opt your kid out of this class, what? That's like when a TSA agent says, you know, I have to do a pat-down of your daughter. My answer is no. I know you say that's your policy, but I don't care. You know. You're not going to do it, right? In other words, it's a conscious decision. Something bad might happen. But no, it's not worth it. And I think parents need to get to that point, too.
0: Wow. John Stone Street, here on Illinois Family Spotlight. We will continue our conversation. We're going to talk about the Equality Act and a couple things happening in Illinois right after this. This is Illinois Family Spotlight, Monty here, joined by John Stone Street with the Colson Center on Breakpoint Commentaries, author, public speaker, gifted public speaker. The Equality Act has passed the U.S. House. We need to have our radar up on this, don't we?
1: Well, it, the Equality Act's been around for decades, and this is about as far as it's gotten. Now, there's, I think, good reason to think that it will die in the Senate. but. If it came to the floor of the Senate, then, uh, especially, for example, where the Chamber of Commerce has publicly endorsed the Equality Act, and the Chamber of Commerce has a lot of influence over, you know, Republican lawmakers, and so it, it's just, it, it's gone from being a non-starter to being more of a possibility. Here's the issue. The next election changes things, right? That's this year. That's federal. There's very similar things at the state level. and really where the danger is presented, what the Equality Act does is it takes categories like sexual orientation and gender identity and elevates them to the same category as race in federal law. And so we have public accommodation laws that were part of the Civil Rights Act which basically were designed so that African-Americans in particular could fully participate in society, could travel across, you know, the, the country, find a hotel, could basically find a restaurant, find gas. And this was talking about a situation where literally they could not participate in society. What the Equality Act would do was take sexual orientation and gender identity. So taking a group of people who are fully participating in society, right, who if this baker won't bake a cake, the baker right down the street will, right? If this bed and breakfast won't serve, all the hotel chains will. There's not a need for public accommodation, but it elevates that. And it basically means that anyone who has a deeply held belief uh, about sexual orientation and gender identity that's different than the acceptable culturally acceptable view now will they go into the dustbins of history like the kkk or radical racist so it's not only what it does to elevate sexual orientation and gender identity to a category of human being that it's not it's that dissenters then get demoted to a category of the great you know villains of american history and there's really no way out so this would be a game changer when it comes to religious freedom And what we mean, of course, by religious freedom is not what we believe, but the ability to order our lives and live out our beliefs in the public square.
0: Well, this could impact your job situation?
1: Oh, it would. There's no question it would impact your job situation, um, and it would impact especially uh, privately held businesses, publicly traded companies. It would impact churches and nonprofits. That sexual orientation and gender identity then in law becomes the same as race, even though Uh, Scientifically, it's not the same as race. Historically, it hasn't been seen the same thing as race. And so it's a real problem on a number of levels.
0: I think a lot of pastors are silent on this thinking, well, we're hands-off here in the church, Mm -hmm. but the scope of the Equality Act could come right inside the church.
1: Well, and I I think that reveals what is, in my mind, the deeper problem is that I think a lot of pastors, because there's been so much cultural heat and because I think they feel like speaking out against this, you know, puts them kind of in a a disfavored position in culture, makes them kind of the bad guys that they don't want to do it. And they'll say things like, well, if, you know, anybody tries to make me perform a same-sex wedding, that's where I'll draw the line. Well, look, I don't think any pastor should have to perform a same-sex wedding, but I also believe that the kingdom of God is not just pastors and missionaries, it's anybody. And I believe that all jobs are sacred, and I believe that all callings and vocations are sacred. And so, I don't think a pastor should have to perform a same-sex marriage. But if I believe that, and I believe that the baker's job is just as sacred as the pastor's, well, then just like a pastor shouldn't have to perform a sermon or a, a wedding ceremony that violates his beliefs, a baker shouldn't be forced to participate in something that violates his beliefs. Both should have that sort of freedom. So it's a great loss. And, if it, and what pastors need to understand is if it gets to the level of the church, then religious freedom largely has been lost. And they need to stand up for the sacredness of calling and work for the bakers, the, 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 the calligraphers, the florists, and everybody else in their congregation.
0: Well, it could get to the point where because of the Equality Act, you would have to hire a secretary who is uh, an avowed lesbian, mm-hmm. etc. Or, down the road, could it be that, well, you're preaching about homosexuality and we consider
1: that hate speech? Yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, of course, the, 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 the magic here is what's counted as an exception. And that, in and of itself, is the problem. So any sort of, we saw this with the HHS mandate uh, of Obamacare, is that everyone had to provide abortifacient sort of medications except this very small group of people that received exceptions. Well, that was so small that that didn't include the Little Sisters of the Poor group of nuns, right? In, In other words, that gives the government the right to determine what counts as a religious group and what doesn't what counts as an organization or an initiative that should be shaped by religious opinion and what should be, you know, in the realm of public accommodation. That's not the power you want to give the government. In other words, because they will draw the line and get it more and more. And then, by the way, this is actually the problem with many that are trying to respond to the Equality Act with some sort of kind of compromise, like we saw in Utah. And there's even, you know, large groups that are advocating for so-called compromise solutions. But again, that gives the power to define what is and what is not a religious group to the state, as opposed to keeping it in the realm of conscience. And yeah, so all of those scenarios are possible, but the bigger issue is the government's the one that gets to make that decision. And that's a real problem.
0: John, we hear about so-called gay Christianity and we know that's infiltrating some of our Bible-believing churches. Would the Equality Act kind of speed that process along?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question and I'm not sure of the answer uh, to that. So far right now, the Uh, churches, so-called churches that have embraced um, kind of a new sexual ideology, are churches that have already abandoned the gospel in other ways. People that are strong on things like the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the uniqueness of salvation, time after time after time, those groups have actually reaffirmed their commitment, and those denominations have reaffirmed their commitment to biblical marriage. And so that's the good news. I guess the the prediction that this is overrunning the church, I just think is a false prediction right now. I mean, we're theologically sound enough to prevent it, but right now it is. But I think your point is a little bit different, which is that, you know, most of America in the 1960s, uh, much of America wasn't ready for the Civil Rights Act. They weren't ready really for the racial equality that was rightly promoted and preached um, by many Christians, including like Dr. King and others. What that tells us is is that most times politics is downstream from culture, right so we get the laws that the culture reflects, but Civil Rights Act is one of those things where, in many cases, the law was upstream from culture. the culture wasn 't ready for it, but the law ushered it in and I think that is where the something like the Equality Act would be I mean look look, most Americans don 't want to open up private intimate facilities for women to men. Most people do not want to squander the opportunities that have been presented and provided for women in scholarships and Business grants uh, to men, but sports is a big one. America's not there, and so to actually, uh, what this legislation would do would be to mandate that on a group of people that aren't ready for it. And I think that this would be another way in which the law would precede the culture, and so it would be a bad law, and therefore would give us bad culture.
0: Well, even though it may not uh, really see the light of day in the U.S. Senate maybe we should be calling our senators?
1: Well, we should because what we need to know is, uh, what our senators need to know is that this isn't universal. In fact, this, and by the way, it's not, only, it's not even universal within that other side of the movement. I mean, sexual orientation and gender identity are two very different things that have been grouped together. And we've seen increasing evidence that in particular, if you kind of take the acronym, that those in the L camp, who by and large are a uh, historic feminist, second wave feminist, third wave feminist—they're not thrilled with the T's jumping in and claiming women's rights. I think that if you're against the Equality Act, you know whether it's because of Christian conviction or whether whatever conviction, you should let your senator know. Because I think right now people in Congress think, okay, there's this side and there's that side, and there's just kind of a universal push. There's not. There's not unanimity unanimity on this issue at all and yeah people need to know about that but the other side of this and this is I think really important is it's not just the Equality Act that's a federal level thing but state after state after state after state have so-called soji legislation that are enacted at the local level or not enacted, but then an unelected civil rights commission basically, you know, forces in a new understanding of non-discrimination or public accommodation, even though there's not a soji on the books there. And so that is something that I think all citizens need to be aware of too.
0: You know, you want to express your opposition to this legislation or these measures going through local governments or state government. But how do you do that without sounding like a hater when they, they say equality? Well, who's against equality? Yeah.
1: Well, one of the best strategies, I think, is to define the terms, right? What do you mean by equality? Uh, this was, I think, one of the mistakes we made in the marriage issue is that we talked about marriage equality. Well, before you know what marriage is equal to, you need to know what marriage is. You know, if this marriage is the same as that marriage, what is marriage? And we have to define our terms, and I think we've got to get really good at asking good questions. We've got to get really good at articulating our views, and then we've got to stay calm. Right now, I think in particular, there is a level of hysterics from the other side and we often respond in kind and the fact of the matter is we can't. And then finally, of course, we we care about ideas not because we want to be right. We care about ideas because we believe what's true and that bad ideas have victims. And you know, the victims of the bad ideas are not just the bakers and the florists on our side of the aisle, but the victims of these bad ideas are people that are pursuing something that's leading them in, away from life, away from Christ, away from flourishing. So we do it because we love our neighbors.
0: Uh, John, thank you so much. You heard it here, folks, from John Stone Street. Breakpoint Commentaries, uh, Colson Center, and John, you have a great book, A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World, very timely. Where can people pick it up? just How good is it?
1: <laughs> well, buy it so my kids can go to college. Breakpoint.org is the best place to find it. You can go to the store there because you can find it on Amazon and wherever else. But you can also subscribe to our daily Breakpoint commentaries and learn more about the Colson Center at that website. So that's a one stop shop, Breakpoint.org. All right, thank you so much. John Stone Street, God bless you in your ministry. How can people connect with you? Twitter is a great place, at JB Stone Street, and then again through Breakpoint. Breakpoint.org. Email me through there, contact me through there find the resources there right, thank
0: you. and god bless you folks please tell a friend about Illinois Family Spotlight and remember to support the work of the Illinois Family Institute until next time God bless thank you for listening to Illinois Family Spotlight for more information please visit us at ifiaction.org and look for us on Facebook and Twitter if you would like to email us questions or comments please do so at feedback at ifiaction.org. Until next time, stay engaged and keep your eyes on the prize.